On today's episode, we got to talk to Seychelles Webster, the current stand-up paddleboarding APP World Tour champion. It was great to talk to her about her journey in stand-up paddleboarding, her training and nutrition, and where she sees not only herself in the coming years, but also the sport. I really hope everyone enjoys this conversation as much as we did. So here we go. Welcome to the Wicked Aloha podcast. Our guest today does not need much introduction. She is arguably the fastest woman on a stand-up paddleboard today and current APP SUP world champion. It is Seychelle Webster. Welcome to the show, Seychelle. How Thank are you, you so morning? much for having me. I'm excellent. How are you guys? Good. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm we stoked have, to be here. We have overcome the technological mishaps for the morning. Once again? Once again, and we are here. So happy <laughs> happy Monday. Um, congratulations on an amazing season and uh, and year. And uh, let's uh, let's start by just how did you start stand up paddleboarding? How did you get into it? Where are you from? Who are you? <laughs> yeah, good questions, uh, and it'll be a long answer, but that's good. I am, uh, I'm originally from the Florida Keys, and I started paddling, um, when I left home, I took off sailing, and I worked and sailed on boats all around the world for many years, and, uh, so I first discovered stand-up paddle on you know my sailing ventures just trying to do a little bit of sup surfing and then I really got into sup yoga and um I moved back to the keys I was going through a pretty rough time in my life um and I started working at a paddleboard shop, Paddle the Florida Keys, and um, they were training the people that own the shop, Scott Based and some of the employees, they were training for these sub races, and I went, racing? Like, this is just a, you know, like, recreational thing that we just do for fun, and they were like, no, you know, you're really athletic, you should come train with us. So, um, so I was teaching sub yoga at the shop. I was doing sub tours at the shop and then they got me on a race board and, um, I did my first race and I won it <laughs> and nice. I'm very competitive and I am very athletic, obviously. Um, and obviously very competitive. So I, um, so I won my first race in the keys and I just, I was hooked. I went, oh my gosh, this sport is awesome. I was a, I was a, a, a recreational runner. And I, when I learned that there was a way that I could get that same sort of workout, but be on the water training out in the ocean, which of course the ocean is my biggest passion and my biggest love. Um, there was, it was a no brainer. I mean, I, for a while, I never went running again. I just paddled. Um, so yeah, that's how I got started. And um, so, so what year was this? This was 2014. It's about five. Well, now we're in 2020. So it'll be I've been paddling for five, five full years, I guess. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think when I met you, I was, so I was in Key West, that was the start of 2014, and you were working for SEPTA Florida Keys at that point. I think you and, had just started and doing yoga and stuff like that. You were actually working at Lazy Dog, Will? I was working at Lazy Dog. Meeting you then, you were well working at Lazy Dog, yeah. And so Key West that year, Key West Classic, that was my second race ever, and um, which to do 12 miles was kind of crazy when you'd just been paddling for a few weeks, basically. Um, that's a nasty I, 12 miles too. <laughs> and it's I always remember, a nasty 12 miles. It's a nasty 12 miles, but I. I had done my um, I had done my first marathon that February. Running marathon. I, running marathon, and then wow. I started paddling in April, and then Key West Classic is the end of April, so I'd been paddling like a month, and I just remember thinking, oh, sorry, my dog just knocked over my paddle. Um, I just remember <laughs> thinking that the that paddling around Key West 12 miles was way harder than running a marathon. Really. Yeah. That's wow. what I thought about my first 12 mile race. I went, that was harder than running a marathon. Wow. So, <laughs> but, but I trained for several months to run a marathon. I trained for a few weeks. Right, to right. So, so that, that also probably yeah. has something to do with it. And that, that 12 miles around Key West, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, is probably one of the harder 12 miles, especially when the wind's blowing. Once you get out of that jetty and you get into the open water, that's, I think everybody would acknowledge that that's a really crappy thing to paddle, especially if you're new to it. Well, now it's my favorite part of the race. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That explains a lot of things. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's a good, challenging race for sure. Every... Not... Go ahead. Well, I was just saying that that race has everything, yeah. you know, similar to the graveyard has everything. Yeah. What do you like better? Oh, what do I like better? QS Classic or Carolina Cup Graveyard? Yeah. Um, hmm. Probably, I don't know. It's a good question. It's a tough call. Probably, I mean, Key West, I've won it a couple, a couple of times. So you always have a special place in your heart for a race that you've won a couple of times. But Carolina Cup, I've always wanted to win, and it's always been my biggest goal until last year when I was the first year that I did, wasn't able to do Carolina Cup because I was injured. Um, so up until that point, it was always, like, my biggest goal race of the year, and I and it always something always went wrong, and I always did way worse than I thought I was going to. So I have a different, like, you know, mental, I guess, relationship when I think about QS versus Carolina. Um, but in terms of the, the, de the demands of the course, um, in terms of the demands of the course, I guess Carolina is actually, I would say easier than Key mm -hmm. West. Really? Yeah. Yeah. See, I would have thought differently because you have like, legit open ocean conditions in Carolina, whereas Key West, even though it's it's super windy and gnarly, it's not as open ocean conditions are. So you have smaller period 
little annoying wind waves and <laughs> you don't have just big ocean waves. So, but. Well, what I, or do you want to go ahead? No, no, go ahead. Well, what I found with Carolina Cup is because they always do the open ocean section as a downwind. Even though, yes, you're in the open ocean, at least you have a bit of help. Even if you're not experienced, you're going in the right direction. With sea wet, and then you and then you get on the inside, and yeah, you're going against the wind and sometimes against the current, but it's flat, and you can draft. Yeah. But in Key West, I feel like every time you turn the dang corner, the wind is in your face. <laughs> and you yeah. turn the corner again, you think, oh, it's not going to be in my face, and it's in your face. And you just keep turning the corner because there's like several like turns. You know, it's not like a circle. It's it's a weird shape to go around. And and I I swear every time you turn that wind's in your face again and it's like you just don't get a break and I feel like in Carolina you get a couple of breaks. Yeah, I think with with Key West too when you get to that last section towards the finish, you don't have as big a period of swells as you do in the open ocean, but you get the refraction off that jetty which makes things super shitty. That's where things <laughs> get really, in my opinion, it's like coming in on Molokai when you get two miles off. Cocoa head and you start getting that bounce back and things just turn horribly awful. That's uh, well, not awful. It depends on the perception, I guess. I mean, that's your favorite part of the course. That's that speaks to your open ocean skills as a paddler. Have you paddled the Molokai race? I haven't. It's um, it's on my to do list, uh, but I just haven't felt ready for it because I come from a total. Flat water background, I learned how to paddle in the Keys, and I, up until a couple years ago, had almost no ocean experience, except for a couple times going around the graveyard course. Um, I I knew that, that Molokai was something that I could aspire to, but that I haven't been ready to do until, you know, probably now, but it just hasn't, it has to fit in the schedule, and, it, and so now, ever since I felt ready, I'm not sure when it'll it'll fit in, but I th I'll definitely do it one day. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I did a majority of my Molokai training on when I was living in Key West, and there was a couple days. So I, I had some really good downwinders actually, um, just going from uh, was it Sugarloaf Key down to Key West, and then there was another day where uh, a friend of mine we actually got dropped off in the middle of the ocean somewhere. Like we, we went on a boat, got dropped off in the middle of the ocean and paddled for like an hour downwind. Like we, we, we went out of Key West a few miles and we were able to find big enough open ocean swells. And it was, it was kind of, it, it was interesting because you know, you're in the Keys and they're, is no big open ocean but so it, it was it was good to kind of get that eye-opening experience and then i came out here and to hawaii and the ocean's completely different so it doesn't matter how hard i trained there or anywhere on the east coast i wasn't going to be able to mimic what the ocean does here so that's my my bit about training for molokai on the east coast <laughs> And you, um, your little spot there on the beach, Seychelles, is uh, 
has living right there on the beach in the surf helped with your surfing and open water skills at all? Oh, 100%. That's why I moved here. Um, I moved to Melbourne Beach from the Keys um, two years, a little over two years ago. And with my with the goal with the intention to to learn how to surf and to to be able to um compete in in ocean and open or even just in rough more rough conditions because i knew that i was just as fast and capable as the top women in the world on flat water but as soon as we got into any sort of moving water i was just got left in the dust and, and so I, you know, and so I decide, I mean, I, my goal, I was like, okay, well, I, I need to get to the next level. I need to be able to perform in the ocean. And so I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to move up here. So I, um, I mean, I've been slowly but surely getting better throughout the five years since I started, but there was a big, I think a big change between, you know, 2017 and 2018 when I learned how to surf and then I could keep up in all conditions, you know, mm -hmm. I'm still learning. It's been two years. And, uh, like I won the surf race in New York this year. And that for me was just like, I find that was when I finally went, wait, okay. I guess I actually, I actually do know what I'm doing a little bit now. I'm not nice. like, uh, you know, Big wave surfer, but um, obviously I've, I've figured it out. So that's, it's yeah. exciting. Makes it all worth it. Yeah. When did you, um, when did you realize in your racing career that when did kind of the light bulb go on where you realized that you had the potential to compete with or take out the best in the sport? <laughs> I mean, what, 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 was there like a moment when you, when you did a race and somebody showed up and, and you like, you you were right on the podium with him and you thought to yourself, wow, you know what? I could probably compete with these people. You know, I the, honestly, from that very first race that I did, I went, I love this sport and I'm going to be really good at it. And, <laughs> and I decided that literally from the moment I started paddling and I did my first Carolina Cup, not... I don't think it was that first year. It was the second year. So it was probably 2015. Yeah. Um, and, and that was the first time that I had stacked, got to stack myself up against the pros. And, um, and that's, that's the reason why that race has always been so special to me because, you know, for the first few years of my career, it was, over the first couple of years, it was the, it was the, the one and only race where I got to stack myself up against the pros. And I knew definitely from, I was already working on, on it, on my, when I was training for that first Carolina cup, I was already training to try and see how I could do against these top women. And, um, I, nef I definitely knew after that race that on the flat water, I killed it. I felt like I was catching people, passing people, just like I knew I was really fast and I knew I was fast enough already in the flat water, but that in the ocean, again, I just got left mm. in the 
dust. <laughs> like it wasn't even, it wasn't pretty at all. Um, so, so then it was my goal after that to get better in the ocean, but it wasn't, you know, and I, and I did a little bit, but it wasn't, you know, until a couple years later when I actually moved to where I could train in the ocean that I felt finally comfortable. So, you know, when did I, I think your question was, when did I decide I wanted to try and compete against the top or when did I feel like I was, re- you know, ready? Yeah. When did you realize you were kind of ready and, and decided, but I guess the, the, the horse before the carriage question would be, when did you realize when, was there like a moment when you thought I can do this? Yeah. I mean, probably that first Carolina cup, because I really did feel like in the flat water, the, the people, the women that, that I was able to catch in the flats and pass in the flats were already like the top 10 women in the world. And I went, well, then I'm right there. You know, if I can get my shit together in the waves, I'm, I'm there. And so, I mean, I just, like I said, I, this sport, I don't, you know, sometimes you just, something feels right. And you just, you just love it. And you just, I, I'd already knew that this was what I was doing. This was my, um, my passion and my, my drive driving force so yeah yeah for a lot of years carolina cup was right up there with you know it it was considered one of the the if not top race in the world for for everyone so you know all the all the top races were there so yeah if, if you were finishing in the top 10 you were right up there in the top 10 in the world so I was 11th the first year. I I made my way up to eighth, but then I slipped back to 11th on the on the ocean leg. <laughs> well, e- e- either way, just yeah. <laughs> um, it's nothing to shake a fist at, but you know, for your first year at Carolina Cup, doing that well, that's that's something to to be said. So de- definitely. Uh, and then when did you, uh, you also held the world record there too for a 24 hour distance. When, when did that happen? Yeah, that happened in 2000 and, um, it was the end of 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. Yeah. It was about four years ago and I, um, so that was the end of that year, right? Yeah. So that year I was training in 2015, I was training primarily for the 24 hour world record. That was my biggest goal that year. And what, what motivated you to do that? Is there something about that long distance and those ultra events that are appealing? Well, that's an interesting question too. So what motivated me for the 24 hour um, paddle was that I really wanted to paddle from Key Largo to Key West, a hundred miles. But logistically, it's it's a nightmare paddle um, in terms of trying to find a route and find support and have the right weather. Um, there's people that have paddled the Keys, but you know, kind of taking their time stopping here and there. Um, and so uh, the owner of Paddle the Florida Keys, Scott, who was, you know, you know, my my biggest mentor in the beginning of this sport, he 
I was trying to talk him into it. And he said he was actually following Shane Perrin at the time who had just done his 24 hour paddle. And he was like, well, I want to do this 24 hour paddle and see if I can get more miles than Shane did. And I was like, he's like, why don't we just do that here at the shop? And we set a course and um, we decided that we would do that on New Year's. So that was New Year's between 2014 and 2015 was actually the first time uh, I did a 24 hour nonstop paddle, totally unofficial. You know, we kept track of our own miles and, um, Scott ended up not making it, but I did. And when we added up how many miles I did at the end, I had done more than the world record at the time. So that inspired me to actually train to do it officially. And, um, it was supposed to be in April, but then we had to delay till the end of the year. The summer months are too hot. Um, but so it gave me like the whole year basically to prepare uh, for that. So, yeah. And it, did that kind of lead you towards uh, the 11 cities race? Yeah. So I, at that point, got picked up by uh, Miss Strahl mm-hmm. as a, to be a rider for them. And they were really good to me in the beginning. They recognized, hey, well, you just did the 24-hour world record paddle, so um, we want to bring you over to Holland because that's where they're based. And so the 11 City Tour is one of the biggest races for for that brand. Every brand kind of has their, like, favorite races, right? So um, so they said, well, well, we definitely want to bring you over for that. So that first time that I went to do the 11 City Tour was, you know, my big international breakthrough um and that was because of my relationship with Mistral at the time um so yeah awesome. um I didn't I wouldn't have I guess I didn't really know whether or not I was like an ultra endurance I guess I would have said I was ultra endurance because I did I did my first marathon like the winter before I found paddling and after as soon as I basically as soon as I completed that I was like okay I'm gonna train for an ultra you know (laughs) I did 26 I'm gonna do 50 and then I'll do 100 and that never happened because I started paddling but I guess I do kind of have that mentality of because you know then one of my first major goals in paddling was to do a 24-hour paddle so um I'm not sure why I am I guess we just we're always we always want to challenge ourselves and we always want to push our mm-hmm. limits and we always want to see what we're capable of and that's what drives us to um, to do events like that. But the Eleven City Tour is definitely a, a special event. And uh, how many times have you uh, done it? Three. Three. Yes. Won all three. <laughs> I won all three. Yeah. Nice. Nice. As far as like training goes is your so like you have the 11 cities race in august or september is your whole season kind of to build up to that distance or do you have because i know you're in the paddle monster program um are you are you building continually and uh your training program involves you know, incorporating long distance and, and big distances, um, or is it just strictly for 
like a 12 mile race and then you can extrapolate that and, and make make a long distance race work based on your 12 12 mile distance training program or just uh, i'd love to hear how how your training varies throughout the year i guess based on different races that you're you have in your in your sights my training is different now than it was a few years ago in regards to which events I consider the most important and am training more specifically for. And like I said, that first year I was training specifically for a 24-hour. So actually my first 11 city tour, I did it was part of my training for the 24 hour paddle. If I remember correctly, I was, it was, it was that first 11 city tour was the September actually before the December that I did the 24 hour paddle. So, um, so that year, like I said, the main thing I was training for was like the ultra long distance. And then the next year, um, I'm trying to think, I definitely, once you've done something of that length, you kind of have the experience, and every time I did a longer race, like a Chattajack, like the 11 City Tour, like that just became training for the next one, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, so I focused more on those kind of races in the first couple of years. And then the the, the last, you know, two, two or maybe three years, um, my focus switched because I, I wanted to be top 10 in the world and then I wanted to be top five in the world and then I wanted to be the best in the world. Um, and so that changes, that changed my focus of my training to more of um, yeah, you know, um, 12 miles, or I would even say, um, the main distance that the pros are competing these days is like, you know, 15 kilometers, which is, I guess about, what's just a little under 10 miles. Most races are, seem to be around seven, eight miles, um, so, you know, up to up to 12, but rarely are are the pro racers really congregating in any sort of force at a race that's longer than 12 miles. So I train now primarily to do well at the 10 to 20K distance. Um, so that's a lot more of like an hour-long interval session, an hour-long training session with very sporadic and, and well, well, well-timed and well-planned, but not very often doing a workout that's two or three hours. Like I used to do all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my training plan is designed to focus on the type of race that I want to perform my best at. So I always look at the races that I want to do for the year and I pick two 
maybe three that are the most important and that's what I design my training program to or my training yeah my training program to to look like and to for those types of events and I'll do um I will do leading up to a race that has requires a little more skill like say a sprint race or a surf race I will definitely in the weeks leading up to that gear my training more towards that type of workout a sprinting or you know in and outs and stuff like that in the surf um so the training you know the main answer to your question is the training is always going to look like what the racing is going to look like and um so I still do now in 2019 I still did I didn't do the 11 city tour this year because I just couldn't fit it in um but I did it the year you know the year before in 2018 and I and I still do Chatter Jack and I don't really train anymore for those races specifically I just know that I've done them and I have that experience and I can push through um if there was going to be more elite competition at those events I might do a little more event specific training for the all you know ultra distance but because um there's not often a high level of competition uh I can rely on my base and uh my technique and just approach them at a lot more a lot more efficient of a pace and then I know I'll be able to make it so yeah once once really you well. start having those those bigger races under your belt it's like just the muscle memory is there and and obviously your mental fortitude is there so it's just a matter of digging a little bit deeper um so you don't necessarily have to specifically train for those those longer races because nobody wants to paddle and train for that long <laughs> on a daily basis i think once you learn once you learn how to pace your energy too for those things it just becomes like you just can go out and do it you know yeah i think i think so i agree with what you both just said but to comment on what will just said some people because i write training programs for people doing races like the 11 city tour and chattajack some people do want to train for hours and hours a day like you really have to tell some people like hey that's enough time on the water like that's you know so every everybody's a little bit different some people it's like training for three hours sounds like a nightmare and other people are like can i do more three-hour paddles there's not enough in here <laughs> so just depends i like paddling but i got other stuff to do yeah <laughs> Just as a little side note really quick, we can come back to that volume of training, but you paddle on the um the APP tour, right? And Correct. then yeah. so so there's the APP and then is there an ISF, ISA and there's Euro tour. So how do all those kind of interlock together or how do they fit and are there different kind of crews for those different things or is like ISA is like a one-time deal, right? And then IS, IACF is a one-time deal. But there are, are there multiple tours or are there just one? Right. It's an interesting time in our sport. 2019 especially was quite a divided year. So there are 
several tours. There is, there's the Euro tour, um, has been going on. I want to say they're in their sixth year. And like it says, it's just in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and just in the summer and they do have a Euro tour. Um, you know, it's based on points for the races and, the more high profile races will have more points. And, um, I think you take your best five and they do crown, you know, the overall Euro champs. And then the APP world tour has been going on for seven years. 2019 was my first year on the tour actually. Um, so they also have races all over the world, um, and it's based on points, although every race is awarded the same amount of points. And you take your top scores and add them together, and they crown the world champion or the, you know, the world title in both sprint and distance for an overall for the APP World Tour. And the ISA is the Surfing Association, and mm -hmm. they've been doing a World Championships, which is just a one-off event mm -hmm. for several years. And is that more Olymp like a, a in, in an ends towards the Olympics kind of thing? It's more of an Olympic style because with the ISA, you actually have to qualify for the event and compete for your country. So every country brings a team. And so you have to qualify to be on that team. Okay. And then the, surf, the surfing association of your country is who brings the team to the ISA, you know, paddle um, mm -hmm. and paddle world championships and you compete for your country. So yes, each individual athlete could be awarded a gold, a bronze, a silver or a bronze, but then they also award the top country based on their cumulative points from every, all the medals that the team has earned in all the different events. So that's been going on for several years and I have never gone, even though the last two years I did qualify for Team USA. Um, <laughs> I just haven't really, the, the timing of the events have been bad. The locations of the events have been bad. The organization has been poor in terms of communicating with and helping the athletes to get there. And I have not pledged my support of the way that they run their world championships. Um, so we'll see, you know, they do want to take us up to the Olympics and they are currently in a dis debate, dispute, argument, fight, whatever you call it, over the sport of SUP, which I think is really good for the sport of SUP. They're in this fight with the ICF, which is the mm. Canoeing Federation. Yep. And the Canoeing Federation is new to the game. So they did a World Championships in 2019. It was their very first God. one to do. And um, so they also gave out gold, 
silver and bronze. But they, you didn't, it was different though. You didn't compete for your country. So it wasn't the same kind of Olympic style. It was actually Mm -hmm. more of an individual and it wasn't invite only. Anyone could come and compete. Um, and uh, I, I didn't go because it was the same weekend as Chattajack and I was committed to Chattajack. Um, but I heard that it was run really well and that, you know, the athletes were, were happy. And so, and I've heard that they do want to continue in 2020. And so this is why in 2019, there's is one of the reasons there's more why 2019 was so interesting is because now we have this ICF world championships and then we also have the isa so this the canoe federation did a world championships for paddling and the surfing association continued to do their world championships for paddling and they both you know so we just have a bunch of world champions um (laughs) whatever so if the sport needs to be more organized but i think and i don't know you know the details of of they both want to take steps to the olympics and um, I don't think we're looking at anything Olympic-wise for this sport until possibly 2028 because we're just, we're not, we don't even know what federation is going to take it there right, and then what right. that's going to look like. Right. And so there's a lot of things that this sport still needs to work out in order to get there. Um, but it's, yeah, it, al- you know, it, almost, it almost seems like, just to kind of conclude, it, it almost seems like stand-up paddling is more in alignment with the ICF's kind of body as they've been involved with the Olympics way longer than the ISA. And when you when you consider that the, the ICF probably isn't looking at prone paddling and surfing in their radar of like getting to the Olympics, stand-up involves a paddle, which so do kayaks, so do dragon boats, so do canoes. So it kind of falls into that box a little bit better than it falls into the ISA box, I think. So I'm not really sure why ISA is holding on so dearly to stand-up paddling as they are, but that's I, you have way more experience with it than I do, but you, you really clarified it well. Thanks for clearing that up because I was kind of curious as to how that whole mesh mix-up worked out. Yeah, I mean, I don't have all the answers, but I'm definitely, it's an interesting topic and I'm happy to talk about it. And I don't know exactly how I or, you know, <clears throat> but I'm, you know, it's, uh, I definitely, I haven't, I know I haven't really, I I haven't felt like supporting the ISA because I haven't felt like the ISA has supported the, um, stand up paddle, but, and, but I'm not saying that I support the ICF because I, I don't, I haven't seen, you know, what, what they've done yet either. And, uh, I honestly, I think it'd be awesome if the athletes would be more organized and get together what what we do think and what would be best for us and for the sport. Um, because if we were more organized, we would have a lot of power and a lot of say. But it's been a difficult task. And several athletes have tried it. Chase Costerless tried mm-hmm. it with the SUP AA. And, you know, Fiona and Connor tried a couple years ago with the Paddlers Collective. And then I had a very feeble attempt last year and, and it's just, it's, it's like, it's politics mm-hmm. and I'm not a politician. And so I, I quickly <laughs> realized that my skin is not thick enough, but 
if I was a younger athlete and I saw myself in this sport for a lot longer, I would have probably tried a little bit harder um, to organize. And it's something that's said a lot and it's something that people try a lot. And then it's like, you know, there's, there's we have everything in this sport from, you know, teenagers to 40 year olds um, that are, that are pros and, you got a lot of different opinions about yeah. what is best and yeah. so um so yeah so that gets that gets interesting very quickly when you start opening up those kind of conversations yeah. the other well, thing that happened in 2018 was the paddle league did a world yeah. title right and so that was kind of like they turned the we've had the sup racer world rankings for several years and that's been like the definitive like this is the world rankings. And then they kind of turned that into their version of a world tour. And I thought it was awesome. Um, and then they just disappeared in 2019. So 2019 was interesting because everybody thought, okay, so we've got the world rankings and they, they made like the most comprehensive, like world, you know, world number one, two and three that we had seen in this sport. And then, and then it just disappeared. And then we had the APP did their thing. And if you followed the APP World Tour this year, you couldn't make several of the key events of like the Euro Tour or, you know, there was, it was like you kind of had to choose your path. Um, some athletes were able to make it work. I don't know how, but they just, you know, they can fly across the world and race the next day. But, um, but it, it, it kind of felt like it was really divided this year. Mm. I'm hoping for 2020 that, that it doesn't feel so divided. Um, and, but I, but I think that they, it sounds like the ISA, the ICF, the APP are all going to crown, you know, attempt to crown world champions again in 2020. The Euro tour is definitely doing 2020, but they're not a world championship. They're just Euro championships, but they're awesome. Um, in their organization and what they do for the sport and for the athletes, and then the um, uh, and then and then the world rankings from Sup Racer supposedly are back. So that's awesome because you know everyone's I, and I've always followed uh, the Sup Racer world rankings, and um, but you know we'll we'll see <laughs> because he kind of yeah. he kind of dipped down and came back and dipped down and came back and you know it's. Yeah. The, the sport is, I think, in a lot of ways, you just can't take it too seriously. You know, you just got to have fun, enjoy it, share it with other people, mm-hmm. and just say, hey, right now, there's room for everybody, and let's just have fun. And I would love to see it go to the Olympics, but I think maybe, for me, I know that I'll be too old anyways, so I would just like to see the sport keep going, and I'd just like to see more people participating in it and that. So, yeah. Awesome. So if we took it back to where we were before that, um, we were talking about training and you mentioned that uh, a lot of, some of your clients are just crazy. Let's paddle all day. So do you, just to get back on the topic of training and um, is there, would you say if you averaged up all your clients on Paddle Monster, could you put a number on, an appropriate or a beneficial number of hours of training per week? Like what's too much, what's not enough? Is there a number or is it individual? 
Yeah, that's really individual, depending on your goals. Oh, yeah. Um, and I guess I could say if everyone had a clear schedule to go around their training, which, let's face it, nobody except for, you know, maybe a handful of pros do, um, yeah, there would be an ideal number of hours to train every single week um, to reach your goal. But everybody has different goals. Everybody has different level of experience and everybody has different availability to train. So I couldn't really say what's the ideal amount to train per week because that's going to depend on all of those things. Right. Right. I have with paddle monster, uh, I offer a few different, uh, options so there's group training which is the paddle monsters bread and butter mm-hmm. which is i ha- i have three different novice intermediate and, and advanced programming and so with each step up there's more training volume there's more workouts you know per week and um so that's based on somebody's experience coming into the sport but also based on their avail- availability to train and then this year, I've opened up options for custom training programs so that I can actually, you know, give someone a program that is designed to fit their schedule and their goals, which is a more um, effective way to train. The group training is awesome. Not that it's not effective, but it's it's not, you know, tailored to, okay, I have a race these are my goal races. This is when I want to peak. It's like we have three peaks for the year and, and everybody, we modify the program for you in order to best make it fit, you know? So, um, so I love writing training programs and I love helping people reach their goals. I love hearing, you know, seeing the people that I train do really well at races, but also, um, you know, hearing about it and, and, um, the online training platform is awesome because I can do it from anywhere in the world and I can work with people all over the world. And that is really fun and exciting too. So, uh, did you want a more specific number in terms of what, you know, how many hours my group programs I tend to recommend or no, I mean, I think that answered the question pretty well. That answered it pretty well. I think, I think you nailed it. There was there were way too many variables in that question to just have a flat black or white answer, you know. So yeah, yeah. And how would how do people if someone's interested in in getting involved with you on Paddle Monster, where can they find that? Just paddlemonster.com or Instagram Paddle Monster, or do you have an independent website of your own linked to Paddle Monster or all of the above? <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, paddlemonster.com is the Paddle Monster website. Actually, seychellesup.com, seychellesup.com is my website and it is linked to Paddle Monster and has, I actually think, more, or maybe not more, but better information. If you're specifically interested in training with me, I would go to my website and get the information there and it'll link you to sign up on Paddle Monster, but it also has links to communicate directly with me if you have questions and it's you know so 
if somebody's interested in Paddle Monster and, and what our, com- our online training community looks like and um, and what we're, what we're all about, you know, go to paddlemonster.com. If you know specifically I want to train with Seychelles or have questions for Seychelles, I would do that through my website. So, As far as um, like nutrition goes, uh, I think I've read that you're, you're plant-based, yeah? Yeah, mostly. I went vegan when I was 17, 16, a vegetarian when I was 15, vegan when I was 17. And now I'm still mostly vegan, but I do eat technically I'm vegetarian because I will eat some um, dairy if it's in something or when I'm traveling because um, my nutrition has been a huge passion of mine since I was a teenager and made this decision. Um, and so my main, well, there's a lot of reasons why I eat plant-based, but one of my biggest things that I tell everyone, no matter what your dietary choices are, is it's more important to eat whole food sources than processed food sources. And the more I traveled, the more I found my options for things like protein were processed options. And if I could add um, a little bit of vegetarian, not necessarily vegan, I could get more, you know, something like Greek yogurt, I could get more um, protein from a whole food source than having to supplement with something processed. So, um, but I still consider myself like plant-based, like that's the basis of my dietary choices and the way that I eat and the way that I identify. And again, ever since I was, um, a teenager, uh, the thought of eating (laughs) animals has totally disgusted me. So there's, for me, there's no question about that. Um, and so there's an ethical point, you know, purpose to it as well. Um, and, a, and as well as a large part, part of it is a, the environmental impact that our diet has. And when, and then this gets into choosing, you know, things that are organic um, or raised um, or grown in smaller farming or local farming situations as opposed to these larger or factory farms that have a huge um, impact in terms of the waste and in terms of the resources on our environment to grow and to produce this food. So, um, so choosing vegetarian, choosing plant-based and choosing, you know, organic, choosing local, choosing pasture raised, choosing, um, uh, free range, all of these things are really important as well for me. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, but I think since I've turned more towards, I'm, I'm not a complete vegetarian. I, I still eat fish. Uh, I still eat eggs, but, um, since I've turned to be more conscious about my diet and everything I'm consuming, especially during race season, it makes a 
huge difference in my performance. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if that is, can be correlated to how you've performed just because you've had such a clean diet and, and you are so conscious about how, you know, what, what you're putting in your body. So, um, it, it's interesting to, to hear what, what people are eating when they're performing at such a high level like yourself. So. Yeah, it definitely makes a difference. A hundred percent. What you're putting into your body is your fuel, right? So you probably heard the analogy, how you, you know, what, what, what type of fuel you're using is going to really dictate how your engine runs. And so if we're putting in really crappy food, we're going to probably feel really crappy. Um, and I've been doing plant-based, you know, (laughs) it's really funny. I just thought about this when I, when I went vegetarian and when I went vegan, I was, I was big into soccer as a kid. That was my main sport was soccer. And, um, my, my soccer coach convinced my mom that once I did this, that I had to go get all my blood work done because he said I got less aggressive. And so we went and we, we did all the testing and all the blood work and everything came back totally fine that I was, you know, I was getting everything I needed. And so then, and, and actually ever since that day, my mom's never questions what, what I've done in terms of my diet at all and of course now my parents come to me for nutritional advice which is cool but um but I don't know if I don't know if my aggression did go down or if it was just the stigma at the time that vegan when I went vegan vegan wasn't a thing you it was you couldn't find vegan food like I had to I it was really it was a not necessarily struggle but it was a lot harder than it is now to eat vegan and now it's a thing and now it's called plant-based and that's awesome because I guess that's more people can maybe there's more flexibility in that or, or whatnot. Or, but, um, but now there's, there's so many great options out there and there's still a lot of crappy options. So you still have to filter through the crap, right? I think you can eat any sort of diet, right. And any sort of diet wrong. Um, and, uh, in terms of performance, so the athlete that I am now, I mean, I, it wasn't like I shifted during this career to know if there was a main difference but I know that throughout my life, I've always been someone that people said, gosh, you just have so much energy. You, you know, I, you're fit, you're, you're active, you're healthy, you know, whatever. And so, so that kind of, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, that definitely is, is part of, is part of, is a big part of, of why I eat the way I eat is um, to have, energy to be fueled. And, um, I, I wouldn't want to do this experiment, but I'm sure if I started eating crappy, I would probably feel crappy. Um, it's not I've done that perfectly. You've done that experiment. Yeah. yeah. How'd that go? Oh, I see. You feel crappy. <laughs> you feel crappy. Okay. Yeah. There's this guy called vacation. Will. he comes out every now and then. And oh, uh, I know vacation. Will. And you, you pretty much just get hung over. It's pretty, you, you live like a zombie for a little bit, so. But I think it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's, what do you call it? It's compounded, right? So when you start eating 
bad food and you start feeling bad, when you feel bad, you want to eat more bad food. And it's like this negative cycle on itself, right? That just gets worse and worse and worse. But I think the same thing happens when you eat clean and food that you know is really nourishing you, you feel like, wow, I'm nourished. I want to do more of that. And I feel good. And like, so it's like, you can go down the rabbit hole or you can climb up the beanstalk. You know, it's, it's the same, you can do it either way. And so uh, a lot of times, and this is an analogy for, for, for many things in life, it's just getting started is the hardest part and, and finding out not, you know, what, a lot of people I think are very um, plant-based curious, I would say right now. <laughs> and there was, you know, that movie that came out, The Game Changers, and I can't even count how many people shared that with me, which is awesome. I think it's awesome. But um, but, but, but so many people don't even know where to, where to start because, unfortunately, we're not educated in this country about nutrition the way that we should be. And our, you know the FDA and the art, you know, recommended daily nutritionalizing and all that. I mean, it's so outdated oh and it's God. similar to the American medical association, which we probably shouldn't get me started on that either. <laughs> it's like the people that are running the show are not actually, they're not making these decisions and these disclaimers and these, and, and, they're not doing it for our betterment. They're actually doing it to fill people's pockets. There's so much corruption in the Food and Drug Administration, in the American Medical Association, and um, the food industry. And the food industry. And so it's 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 there's a lot there's a lot that that is really it's really just disheartening and disappointing if you if you think about it and so we're just not we're not educated on these things but I think that people are realizing and people are waking up and people are getting curious and they want to know and so there's this whole new industry of you know people that are we're just doing it from social media and from you know whatever and and so it's it's sort of if you listen to the system and you listen to the out, you know, the government recommendations on things and the big company recommendations on things. It's honestly, it's almost, it's, it's not, it's not steering most people in the right direction. And, um, so I, I think it's good that people are looking for other, other sources and, and realizing that, um, you know, and so, I forget why I even started talking about this, but I'm, <laughs> I can get pretty wound up on. Sorry to get you political on a Monday morning. Oh, no. <laughs> I, think, I think there was the, the friction. I, I think the biggest argument I hear is I come from a, a farming family. My family had a, has a dairy farm that's been running on in California for 125 years. But I was talking to, I forget if my mom or somebody the other day and, mentioned that after Tracy and I came and saw you uh, last month. And prior to that, we started, Tracy expressed an interest in going plant-based and we've been doing that. And I had a couple year run as a kid. My dad died of a horrible cancer. And so my brother and I went, you know, polar opposites and started eating really clean. And I was, you know, 20 drinking too much and eating really shitty. So I, I associated my bad health with the vegetarian diet. So I walked away from it, but, um, 
my point is, I think the biggest argument that you hear from people is, oh, where are you going to get your protein? You know, and it's like that constant protein argument of, of Which is oh, so two thousand. I know, I know. Look at, a, look, look at a cow. A cow eats grass, and it weighs two thousand pounds. But anyway, that's 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 where I think a lot of the uh, it just gets down to the education part that you mentioned of people just don't know, right? They're informed by the dairy industry and the meat industry, and well, know. I get my protein from soy. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I remember it. We could talk about that for a while. Non-genetically modified organic soy is totally fine for you. I'm living proof. You're not gonna die. Um, so I also eat a lot of beans, I eat a lot of nuts, I eat a lot of seeds, all are high in protein, um, beans are also high in carbohydrates, and nuts and seeds are also high in fat, which are two words that are also like, oh my god, carbs and fat, they're, you know, mm -hmm. it's, they're all things that you need, and they're all good for you, um, and, uh, so, I, yeah, I eat a lot of soy, I eat a lot of nuts, seeds, beans, I eat. If I eat a protein supplement, it typically comes from pea protein. That seems to be what they're finding now is one of the cleanest um, sources of plant-based protein in terms of supplementing or having, if I do eat like a processed sort of veggie burger, um, it's typically made with pea protein. Um, and uh what else? I, I eat wheat, grains. I get protein from grains. Another taboo. Oh my gosh, wheat. <gasps> I eat a lot of it. <laughs> and, um, and so grains have a lot of protein. And it's again, it's it's eating non-genetically modified and organic sources of these of these whole foods are actually good for you. It's when you eat really processed and preserved versions of these things like bread that's made to be shelf stable for four years or whatever, like that's not good for you. <laughs> but um, uh, then oh, what others? Oh, and like leafy greens are super good for you in a lot of ways, but also have a, um, if you're eating the in good quality, these are gonna uh, supplement your diet with protein as well. So I mean, there's protein in all of these things. And so when you eat a really well-balanced diet, when you eat a lot of vegetables, green leafy vegetables, grains, whole grains, um, and um, nuts and seeds and beans, which I guess soy is a bean as well. So, um, that's, you're, you're getting protein. You're getting a lot of protein. And yes, I do take a protein supplement. It's a plant-based protein supplement. It's pea protein mixed with hemp and cranberry and a couple other sources of protein. Um, but obviously, you know, uh, every, every body is a little different. Same with training as it is with nutrition. There's not like a one way to eat that's right for everybody. And there's not a one way to train that's right for everybody because we all have different goals. Some people are trying to lose weight. Some people are trying to gain weight. Some people are trying to improve one aspect of their health or, you know, decreased stress or, you know, all these things you can take into consideration with nutrition. So it, unfortunately it's not a cut and dry answer. Like it, it, like it's not a cut and dry answer with training. It's not a cut and dry answer for almost everything in life, but it's, um, but there are fundamentals 
there are fundamentals to follow, you know, and then and try within those fundamentals to find what works for you and how you feel your best. So. And, and you uh, mentioned on your Instagram feed that you use Touchstone Essentials. Well, how does that fit into your program? Is that, yeah. am I right? Yeah, Touchstone Essentials is the company that's like their tag is the good inside and their website's the good inside. And um, so it's a company that I partnered with a couple of years ago um, that does nutritional supplements. So that's where I get my protein and my super green juice supplement. And um, their approach is different than typical supplement companies because if you look at like the what I take now that I consider like a multivitamin, multi-mineral, it's actually the ingredient list isn't like vitamin A, vitamin K, vitamin C, but the ingredient list is like mushrooms, broccoli, alfalfa. Like it's actually herbal supplements. That's actually with the plants inside. And so it's real. It's, it's not a, it's not a whole food, but it's a real food. Um, and so I just, I love that. And it's helped me simplify my nutritional supplementation. And it's, uh, you know, it's obviously working. They also do a hemp oil and a hemp balm that's full spectrum hemp, that's CBD. And so I use that as well. And, the, and uh, using cannabis products has been really helpful for me, especially getting through what I went through last year with my injury and my recovery and um, using plant medicine through nutrition, but also through um, plants like, uh, you know, cannabis or boswellia um, to, you know, reduce pain and inflammation. So, yeah. And, and could you, what, what was your injury again, just for people that don't know, it was your neck, right? It was my neck. I had uh, three herniated discs in my cervical spine. Wow. How'd that happen? You know, overtraining, if I give you the most simple answer. Uh, it's something that I totally did to myself. It's something that I've had pain in that area on and off for years that I just ignored. And then uh, it's, I knew it was getting really bad and I was still training and still working through it until there was the moment where it just went, you know, like mm. that, that sh shooting. I mean, if you've never experienced nerve pain, you don't want to, but it's like the most intense shooting pain going like through your whole body. And then I, I lost, um, there was, so the, so the, so the discs, I guess it got to the point they were probably herniated for a while and they could even still be, but they're not inflamed anymore. So they're not putting pressure on my spinal cord, which is what was causing the pain and also shutting off the nerves going down my left arm. So I lost my left, my left tricep just like disappeared. I had, you know, numb hand for a while. It was, it was, it was painful. It was awful. But, um, but it was also, um, it was also totally avoidable if I had stopped and listened to my body. And so I'm grateful that it happened to me because I learned and grew so much from the experience, you know? So I think, uh, yeah, you can have a traumatic accident to do the same thing. Um, and you could, and you could heal in much of a lot of the same ways that I did, but you, you know, a lot of these things, 
there's a moment where we're injured, but that injury has been building for a long time. And usually your body's been trying to tell you something for quite a long time. And as an athlete, you can be so driven and you can have such a high pain tolerance that you can, you know, get through a lot of these things and, and, or make them a lot worse. Um, and so it's, you know, listening to your body, I, 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 I used to always, I used to think that pain was just normal and we were just supposed to be in pain. And <laughs> one thing that really changed for me in 2019 is once I got through, you know, the, the, the worst of the injury, I mean, I just learned that you're not supposed to be in pain. And if you feel pain, it's, it's a, it's your body is communicating with you and you need to listen and it's trying to tell you something. And then if you do and listen to it, I mean, you just, obviously (laughs) this year was incredible for me in a lot of ways, but I mean, the results speak for themselves. Um, so, so, so would you say you're giving your body more time to recover and you're more, more aware of, of everything that's happening and and like every you know if you have some little pain you're you're more aware of it now and you try to uh take care of it right away or like are yeah you... i definitely um try to take care of things right away and not i and not train through pain. So there's, there's like a type of pain that's like a muscle soreness or a lactic acid. That's a different kind of pain than like a joint pain or a sharpshooting pain, um, or a stabbing pain. I used to get a lot of stabbing pains in my back and now I know exactly what that stabbing pain was. And so there's now, because I've learned what, there was a lot of imbalances, right? And our, the body, the human body is like a master of compensation. And if it can't do something the way it's supposed to, it's going to find a way to do it in some other way. And um, so where our body works off of electrical impulses and nerves. And so sometimes things are firing and sometimes they're not. Sometimes things get overworked and then they get tired and then they get lazy. And then other muscles that are smaller auxiliary muscles that aren't supposed to be doing the main job end up helping out too much. And then that ends up pulling things out of place. And that's where a lot of people end up, you know, feeling pain. One example for paddlers is our lats are supposed to be one of our main core large muscles doing a lot of the, um, work well now i would say you know your core and your legs are doing most of the work but the lats are still very important so this example is the lat can get overworked they can get tired and they can get lazy and that was one of the things that was happening for me if the lats aren't firing properly and engaging properly things like your elbow tend to take the strain because you're pulling you're pulling down when you're paddling and that downward pull it's supposed to engage your lap, but if you're, and if you're not really body aware or, you know, if your lats are overworked or overtired and, and, and these are things that they happen so, you know, over time that we don't even realize next thing, you know, you have all this pain in your elbow. A lot of people have wow. elbow pain, right? And that 
it's not, I'm not saying it's always from your lap, but that's just one example of a very typical pattern in the body. And so I had a lot of elbow pain in 2018, um, probably for that reason, because what I learned through my recovery process was my lats were getting really lazy. So everybody's a little bit different in terms of, you know, how you're functioning, but, but we build, if we're an athlete and we're always training and we're not letting our body properly recover, things build up out of balance. And, um, so that kind of pattern, you know, finding out that kind of pattern, which takes a lot of time. And for me, it was working with a kinesiologist, a a neurokinetic, um, therapist to work with, you know, muscle testing, but also with the nervous system, uh, to figure out those patterns and how to correct them. So to answer your original question, what do I do when I have pain now? Well, I stop and I think, okay, where is that pain? What muscle is that and why is, and oftentimes it means I need to relax wherever I feel that and activate whatever's not activating that's supposed to be activating. And okay, so I can't always stop and do that in the middle of the race, but I'm, you know, uh, but I, then I learn how to, when you feel it, when you can feel that immediately, you can just help build the correct muscle patterns and the balanced muscle patterns as opposed to building on the imbalances and the incorrect patterns, which a lot of us have, you know, since the body is going to compensate. So what if, what if you're in the middle of race season and you feel something that just doesn't feel right and you're like, oh, that's not good. Do you keep training or do you make adjustments to your training to be able to stay at the high level that you're at? Or how, how does, how does a small injury not affect your training so you can continue to compete and continue to do as well as you do? Yes. Are you talking about me specifically or, or Uh, for anyone in general? Just in general, you specifically, I mean, you just overcame a huge injury. So, um, I know that, you know, I'll have, I'll have workout sessions where I'm just like, Oh, that didn't feel good. And, you know, it might end the session there, but you know, the next session I might not be like, I'm still training, obviously. Like I'm, I'm training through an injury. What is, what is your approach to training through an injury? Yeah. So it's a good question. And it's a question that I don't have. I mean, there's never a perfect answer, but I feel like I have a very imperfect answer because I'm still learning. Like typically I was right there with you trained through everything, you know, like as soon as you could be back on the water, trained through it because I'm supposed to be in pain. I'm an athlete. And, and now I'm like, wow, that was wrong. And that's why I really injured myself. Um, so what I'm, I'm still, I'm still learning, uh, because I, since I had this neck injury, um, what, what I would say, what, and what I'm trying to do and what I have been doing is, um, when I start to feel pain, 
Um, well, I, 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 I've changed the way that I'm paddling so that I'm almost never in pain um, anymore when I'm paddling or if I am, I can stop and I can do a couple of little release and activation exercises and then get back into it. And if it really feel bad, really feels bad, I will just, um, I will just, you know, paddle back slowly. Um, and so for me, it's about making sure that I'm paddling in the correct form that I know is the healthy way for my body to paddle. But, and, and I knock on wood since then, I haven't really felt any little injuries. And so I think part of it is going to depend on where the injury comes from. Was it something traumatic or is it something that's an overuse or an overstrain, you know, sort of injury? And I would definitely say that, um, that's, that the earlier you can address it, the better off you're going to be. Um, and you really need to learn your body and learn when you have pain, you know, stop and ask your body like, okay, why is this hurting? What have I been doing? What did I do? Where am I tight? What's overworking? What's, what's not working, you know, properly. And there's, and it's, and it's difficult to do on your own. Um, so I would recommend finding a really good, you know, physical therapist, a neurokinetic therapist, a kinesiologist, a body worker of some form that really you like their methods and it feels good for you. And I would seek assistance as soon as you feel like you're in pain. And um, whenever somebody's trying to get back into training, um, going slow and giving your body the time that it needs is always actually the fastest way to get back because when we go back too soon, we end up having these nagging injuries forever and ever and ever and sometimes the rest of our lives um, as opposed to actually healing from something. And, yes, maybe you're out for a few weeks to a few months, but right. you then may not have that for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, so um, as, does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as far as like uh, recovery just from a normal workout, you're, you're talking about muscle soreness, lactic acid, things like that. Have you found that since you started using um, a CBD product that that time has decreased and that you're able to recover faster and then train at a higher level? Um, I'm not really sure if CBD specifically, I know that it does work internally to help you relax and reduce inflammation and, and a bit, but mostly by, by simulating that relaxation response in your body and your mind, um, that, that it needs to, we need to be in, um, a rest and digest state in order to do a lot of things like recover, get proper sleep, um, digest our food properly, you know, to be properly nourished. And so, um, so the body, the way our lives are, the way we live our lives now, it's very common for people to be in 
the more of a fight or flight state. So more high alert, high energy. Um, the state that you're in when you're doing a physical activity is a, a form of stress, right? But we also have stress from our jobs, from our lives, from driving in the car, from all these things that cause us to be on edge, right? And so when we are like that, our body is not able to relax, which it needs to do to be able to recover, rebuild, repair, sleep, digest, all these things. So um, knowing that, I know that the CBD does help me with that. Um, do I directly feel like, oh, I take this and now I'm not sore? No. It's the thing about CBD is you don't actually feel it. It's, right. it's more of, it's working internally and you just, you obviously, what happens a lot of times for me is like, if I'm like, if I'm stressed out or I'm really tense, I'll take it. And then it's not like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that feels better. It's like later I realize, oh, I forgot and I do feel better. But it's like you don't realize it because it just happens right. like very, you know, subconsciously. So um, so does, does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> I just talked a lot and then I forget what the question actually was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're still training at a high level because you don't, you don't need to take those extra rest days because, you know, at, I think any supplementation that helps you keep training high at a high level is working. Yeah. So. The goal, the, the, the main point is that in order to recover and be ready for your next session, you need to properly nourish to refuel. And in order to properly digest, you need to be in a relaxed state. And then the other thing is you need to get sleep because that's when your body does the most repairing. And in order to get good sleep, you need to be in a relaxed state. So CBD helps it, with all those things. CBD helps all those things, but it's not necessarily the CBD. It's just in general, the more you can reduce stress in your life and the more you can find time to nourish your body and and just relax I just think that and especially as an athlete we have this mentality of like go 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 I have to I'm like you know like your goal never sleeps right and you just you're 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 a very you're a very motivated person and you're a very ambitious person and you just feel like you always have to be doing something and and I mean that's not necessarily an athlete I mean that's a type a person in general but that's typically an athlete and so it's hard, it's difficult to to shut that off and finding whatever it is for you that helps you to shut that off is what's going to help you be a happier, more successful, more thriving person because you because you're able to relax. And that that for me, honestly, that's the biggest difference and the most that was that if there's any like that's the most important or most prominent or most helpful thing for me last year was learning that just just relax chill out (laughs) it's all gonna be okay do the work and then relax you know don't do the work and then be like okay but now what's the next work i gotta plan do the work 
And then having a training plan, if we go back to training, really helps with that too. Because I have a plan that I follow and I know what I need to do, when I need to do it. And I can do that without thinking about it. And that really helps too. So I know as long as I do what's on my plan, then I'm then I'm good. Then I don't got to worry. Like, trust the process, you know? It's, Just, it's so nice. I've started writing things down, like making a daily list of, of things I need to do. And it helps me stay focused on what needs to be get done, obviously. But also it's just, you can look at your list and see what's crossed off and be like, I did all this today. This is awesome. Like, I'm yeah. a rock star. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm a big, big proponent of lists. And we're, we're, we'll, we'll let you go here in a second. Um, I just had a question on, like, I've been looking through your social feeds to kind of get a little background. And there seems to be a common theme of overcoming fear uh, and adversity, being yourself unapologetically, and gratitude. And I find in, in my own experience, it, it seems to me that people who have experienced a little bit of adversity in their lives are more open to grasping the concept of um, like overcoming suffering and adversity to kind of get to this higher place of rewards. And you quoted um, a, a quote from the prophet. You said it was one of your favorite books and one of your quotes, the abbreviated version is, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can attain. And I'm just wondering if you just, you have this amazing attitude. And I think there's a lot of reasons that you have a giant fan base and that it's, I think it's because you're very transparent and honest on your social feeds. You're not afraid to hide the fact that you're overcoming either emotional adversity or physical adversity. And I'm just wondering if that level of self-awareness and that level of being able to be genuine and vulnerable comes from, was there like a, cat, a catalyst moment or one experience in your life that kind of set you on the path of accepting that hard work and adversity in the end reveal prizes and gifts that couldn't be attained otherwise? Or is that just something you've developed over a lifetime of being who you are? Um, it's definitely something that I have developed over a lifetime and the teachings and the research and the reading and all the things that I've done that have helped me to find these truths and this, you know, level of consciousness are, it's, it's ancient wisdom. I mean, it's things that people have been practicing for thousands of years. Um, and so I definitely had sort of a resurgence, I would say, in 2019 of wanting to share this type of message with the world because part of my healing process was really making an intention to help other people with their healing process. And so that's why you're seeing more of that type of content from me because like part of my mission is, is to help people. 
And what I'm most passionate about besides this sport is, you know, health and thriving and, and healing. And, and so, um, so yeah, it's, it's been a, a lifetime of, of learning. Um, but there's been little peaks in that. And definitely this last year was one of those peaks. Nice. And lastly, I guess, what's your definition of success? What's your metric of? Uh, yeah, how would I define success? Well, for your, for achieving yourself. your goals. Yeah. I would say achieving your goals, right? So you're not going to feel successful if you haven't. The first step is setting the goals that right. you feel you need to accomplish to succeed. So, um, yeah. Those goals need to be in alignment with your kind of your higher calling or your inner nature, I guess, for lack of a better term, right? Like if if your goal is I want to make a million bucks, but your passion is helping people, and you know those aren't really in alignment, right? Unless you can use that that money to assist with that. Well, there are people who use helping others to make money. I mean, sure, you can make sure, money totally, doing anything. totally, totally. So those two could be in alignment if that's your, yeah. you know, those are your goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Real quick, what does 2020 look like? 2020, uh, well, I'm still waiting on a few variables, you know, in terms of race schedule. But um, for the rest of the winter, I actually have um, some traveling. I'm doing <laughs> Somehow I'm doing more traveling this year than I did in um, 2019 because I'm doing some traveling just for fun this winter. And then I've got like training camps with Paddle Monster this spring. Um, and then like I'm going to really hunker down and focus on my training. Um, probably not until like I'm, I'm training right now, but but not super focused until March which is a little bit later than normal, but the season is running later and later. So um, the racing season will start in April, probably with Carolina Cup. And then I, I plan to do the APP World Tour again, um, as well as a couple stops on the Euro Tour. And um, I'll, you know, I'll do clinics. I want to do more uh, clinics at events. And um, I'm also going to add this year, not just the, the custom programs was an addition for me, but also I'm going to try and do more online tutorial and clinic type offerings for people because there are so many people that, if we're talking about helping others, um, that I feel like want valuable information about paddling that I can't see face to face. I can't see in person because I only do like 10 clinics a year. So um, the online community is such a great resource in order to be able to reach more people. So, um, so one of my goals this year is to have more um, online tutorials, which I don't know is something that people are doing in this sport yet. And I'm happy to experiment are. and see how it goes. I think they are. They I are. Okay. I think it's just starting, but they, I think they are. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, the pattern, the way this world is going, everything's online now, but, um, but it's a way to reach a global audience Absolutely. that you wouldn't normally be able to reach. So, yeah. Awesome. 
Yeah. Well, we look forward to this year for you and we wish you the best success. Where can people follow along with your with your journey this year? Where can they find yes, you? I'm, I'm the most active on Instagram at Seychelles Sup and also on Facebook at Seychelles SUP. And then my website is SeychellesUP.com. And that's, yeah, should be all you need. <laughs> awesome. It was so good talking to you. Thanks for taking time out of your day to, to sit and chat with us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, for, thanks for letting us pick your brain a little bit and uh, get inside the mind of a champion. Well, my pleasure, you guys. It's been so fun. I really, I love this kind of stuff. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. If you like what you are hearing, please share it with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at wicked.aloha.podcast and send us some feedback about what you want to hear. Have a great day and keep moving forward.